Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shanna and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Thank you guys so much for tuning in last week. We... (laughs) Sorry. We... (laughs) doesn't have coffee. Thank you guys for tuning in last week. We hope you enjoyed our episode on past lives. We definitely enjoyed recording it. We want to thank you for participating, liking, subscribing, and commenting. Today we are talking about addiction. So September is the National Recovery Month where we celebrate people in recovery. And today we have a special guest, Steve. And we are super excited to have him here. Say hi, Steve. Hello. <laughs> yeah, Steve is an amazing, wise, and old soul and friend. And we are just honored to have him. Well, thank you for having me. And that's very kind of you to say. Yeah. I appreciate it very much. Did you guys know that according to the national survey, 19.7 million Americans age 12 and up are battling addiction? Not surprising. Yeah. And I'm, I, who knows if that's even correct. <laughs> It's just according well, the, to them. Well, the people they're asking do tend to lie about these well, things. Well, no one ever asked me. <laughs> that is well, I mean, oh, I got asked plenty of times if I had a problem. Oh. Yeah. The answer was always no. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, <laughs> did you guys know that the word addiction actually derives from the Latin term enslaved? Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I was definitely enslaved. That's that reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> this is the definition of addiction I found online. It says repeated involvement with a substance or activity despite the substantial harm it now causes because that involvement was pleasurable or valuable it brings dysfunction destruction to your life your health your relationships in your pocket oh yeah mm-hmm. it can be yeah. so, it can become so powerful in a person's life that it will steal your precious time energy and even your soul do you guys agree with that yeah Yeah. Well, let me ask you, how do you guys know each other? So I met Steve while I was stumbling into a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Or I might have actually been carried in by you, Shanna. Oh, Lord. Probably. Steve welcomed me. You you were very welcoming. He was one of the people that made me know that I was in the right place. It just took me about 50 times to keep coming back (laughs) to get it. Right. Yeah. So So you met him at an AA meeting. I did. Right. And... I met Steve. He's one of my clients. We have our own separate. But there's definitely a reason we are all sitting here. Yeah, I have such a connection with Steve. It's so awesome. I love it. So, today, in honor of National Sobriety Month and celebrating myself and Steve, we're going to share a little bit about our stories. Uh, Steve, do you want to start? Okay. I remember very distinctly uh, two incidents from when I was uh, much younger. One, well, I started building uh, models. My parents found out he's very intelligent, or so they were claiming at the time. Uh, they had me in Montessori school when I was three or four years old. And I was speaking French fluently and doing calculus and started building models as a hobby. I was putting them together super fast. Parents were just amazed. I remember all my friends were outside of my window, banging on my window and wanting me to come out and play with them, but I preferred to put the model together instead. Mm-hmm. The other incident, and I'll tie these two together in a second, the other incident was I just completed building a model and I didn't have anything else to work on. So I asked my parents if they would take me out and buy me a model and they said no. And I remember it physically hurt when they said no. Now, the way those two incidents are related is 
I didn't really care about building the models. I wanted to cap off the glue. And I would prefer to do that rather than go have fun with my friends. And when it physically hurt that I didn't have any more to build, it's because the cap wasn't off the glue and I was going through withdrawal. You were eating the glue? No, I was just sniffing the glue. You because were. I never built models in a well-ventilated room, like is the first instruction, on the glue tube. Is always using wow. a well-ventilated area. So looking back, you saw uh, My that. addictive properties were already there and in place, and so is the addictive behavior patterns of issuing friends and fun times for the addiction itself. So what was happening Lack in your of brain? fulfilling the addiction was causing physical and mental pain. And the other way I know I started that early and when it all made sense is when I got into recovery. My sponsor at the time had me start writing out my story. And I remember the day I discovered pot got you high is the day I quit building models. Oh. And I just transferred the addiction from one to the other. It was fun times, yeah. yeah. I used to think it was really important to know when it started, where it started, and why it started. Mm -hmm. And then right. it occurred to me, none of that is really important in my life or my right. recovery for me. Right. It's kind of the story of what came first, the chicken or the egg. It doesn't matter to the man that's starving. He'll eat anything. Oh, wow. Huh. So it's just really <laughs> like... I know, I'm over here like blown yeah. away. Okay, let's have a Steve show. <laughs> let's We're just having change it. our name. Let's okay. not. Mandy. Well, when I look back on my past I can remember one moment for me and that was sitting in my grandma's bar and I remember drinking a Shirley Temple with a bunch of cherries and looking around and just thinking I love this vibe I saw my grandma and my mother being very much the center of attention and attracting a lot of men and they looked beautiful and everyone looked like they were having fun and the music was going and everyone was drinking and dancing and playing pool and the lights were dim. How old were you? I was probably six. Oh. We'd go in and sit in the back corner booth with our Shirley Temples while my mom worked her waitressing shift. And I remember just being so attracted to that atmosphere. So from there, it just was something that I always longed for, was that atmosphere. That's incredible. Yeah, and I even loved the smell of the bar. Oh, yeah. I loved the smell. I could still That's smell disgusting. it. disgusting. Yeah, it was disgusting. I used to love the way my shoes felt on the floor bar. Mm, the bar mats. It sounds like you've both kind of identified, like, where it might have come from for you. But let me ask you, who is at risk? Myself and anybody around me. Is, is there anybody that's at higher risk? No, there's really no way to predict who will and who won't I don't think right. it's a very non-discriminatory thing and normally you find out you have a problem with it when it's too late okay if yeah. you have a problem with it the problem is already there and existing there's no way to know ahead of time mm -hmm. because I come from a family that nobody else in my immediate family has a problem with drugs or alcohol okay I was the only one right you know well, and there's no way to predict that that would happen or not. So like Mandy's family, obviously growing up in a bar. So my family was the opposite. I don't want to like throw out a number, but there's a very large number. There's at least six of us that are in recovery and probably a couple handfuls more who have been battling it their entire lives in my immediate family. So it's very much in our genetics, I believe. Do you think it's genetic or learned? So Just I think because it's, you're brought up around Yeah, so I think much. it's definitely both for me. Okay. Um, because it was learned. We drank when there was a funeral, that we drank when there was a wedding. Mm -hmm. It was just something that was constantly around. It was our neighbors, 
it, everything was a, a party and a reason to drink. So definitely much a learned behavior and genetics. So I know both of you guys very well, and I would consider you both to be empaths. And we've talked a lot about empaths in our podcast. So do you think that being a very highly sensitive person or being empathic, do you that you find a lot of empaths within that group? I don't know if I find a lot of them within that group. I know for me it was definitely part of the factor was getting the voices to shut up. And yeah. a lot of times... You know, if you are empathic or anything like that, you and society tend to misconstrue things. You're suddenly, you know, schizophrenic and hearing other voices and they want to stick you on lithium or other things to shut the other voices up. But it's not really what's necessary. You're just picking up the people around you. So it could be just overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Wanting to numb that down a little. Yeah. I wanted to shut this down. And for those on the podcast, I'm pointing to my head. I wanted to shut that down and make it quiet. I could never get it quiet. In my experience, I have met a lot of people that have had issues with addiction and alcohol, and it seems that a lot of them are extremely sensitive. It also seems that a lot of them are very intelligent, and you, you'll hear that a lot about alcoholics and addicts. <laughs> you asked who's at risk. I mean, there are doctors, nurses, uh, politicians, mm-hmm. you know, war veterans, police officers. Judges. You know, every race you can think of. This is not something that we can pinpoint down to like one person or one type of personality. Because a lot of people do try to put it in a box. Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah. Do you believe that alcoholism is a disease? With active alcoholism, then yeah, I do. Um, I think it's an allergy, mm-hmm. which would put it in line with a disease or a mild form of a disease. Allergy is just described as an abnormal reaction. Okay. Most people, uh, quote, normal people, when they imbibe alcohol or drugs, they get the desired effect they're looking for. They get a a mild sense of euphoria. Maybe some of their barriers come down. They feel a little more connected to things, and they stop. That's a normal reaction to that stuff. The abnormal reaction is, for me, that was go time. That was the starting gun. And oblivion was the end game. I wanted complete oblivion. I wanted a blackout or pass out is what I was aiming for. And there was no in-between. I didn't want to be social. I didn't want to just have a buzz. I wanted to be passed out. That is definitely the area where there's a problem. Then you have the uh, physical component, too, where the body, after prolonged use, will physically require it to continue functioning. Is the weird part. It will require the very substance that's killing it to continue functioning. And if you stop And there's actually science behind that. Yeah, and if you stopped abruptly, you'll go into alcoholic withdrawal seizures Mm -hmm. which is one of the primary ways people die from this disease people coming off of heroin don't die generally if they're withdrawing from heroin they just wish they could and people withdrawing from alcohol will actually seize up and that's why they start treating it with drugs like Librium but what it does is it attenuates the symptoms by mimicking some of the properties of alcohol you don't get a buzz off of it but it fools the receptors into the brain it's to help you to withdraw. Without seizing up. Yeah. What do you guys think about marijuana? Medical marijuana. I think that it's helping a lot of people. So if you are in recovery, is that something you can do with still maintaining your sobriety? Well, I mean, since you're both looking at me, 
My personal opinion? Yeah. Absolutely not. Okay. If you're getting high, I mean, the idea in recovery is no mind-altering substances. They block you from the sunlight of the spirit. And I know personally for me, the first time I went to rehab, three days out, now remember, rehab packs you full of knowledge. No experience, no understanding, but knowledge. Mm -hmm. Three days out of rehab, I was with one of my old friends. Well, I call them old friends, but one of my friends at the time, and they were getting high. And in my head, well, I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem with alcohol. I've never had a problem with pot, so it's okay for me to get high. So Mm -hmm. I got high, and as soon as I did, the thought occurred to me, well, you've already blown your sobriety. You might as well drink now. And 12 days later, I was drunk for another two years. Oh, shit. So they're interchangeable. One is the other is the other. That would be like saying, you know, you're working a double shift on midnights. It's okay for you to do some, you know, black beauties or something. You'll be fine. It'll just get you through. And mm-hmm. it's a mind-altering substance that I I know me. I know how my brain and my disease works. It's for nefarious purposes. There are other ways for me to accomplish those goals without taking a substance. Why do a lot of people not take certain medications, even eat certain foods because... They may trigger. What is it? Well, yeah, because a lot of people look at me like I'm crazy. Like, I'm not going to eat chicken marsala if it's made with white wine. But, wow. you know, I just, first of all, sobriety for me is life or death. Yeah. And so I have to be very aware of what I put into my body. And it will actually start uh, making my brain shoot cravings to, like, my frontal lobe. And, and in your mind it will eventually and could possibly lead you into a relapse, just that very minute amount. So like Steve was talking about earlier, like in your brain, it would move the alcohol back to the top of the list Uh in your mind. You know, it should be oxygen and then water and then food. Well, the second you start putting that into your body, no matter how minor of amount, it's the possibility that the alcohol could go back to the top of that list. There's a possibility it would send off either the physical craving or the mental obsession. There you go. It sounds like you're in the same place I am. I'm not willing to try and chance that or risk it. No. I don't want to find out. There's really no need for me to find out. I'm happy in my life the way it is now. I don't necessarily like taking aspirin or even ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, going to the dentist and they have to shoot you up for, you know, working on your teeth and stuff. I don't even like that sensation. I like it better than, you know, the severe amounts of pain. So, I'm <laughs> yeah. thinking, you know, if you're in the hospital and your arm's been broken or, you know, dislocated mm-hmm. or chopped right. off or yeah. something and they're mm-hmm. trying to shoot you up with some morphine and you're under a doctor's care, I would say probably go for it because, yeah. you know, pain is bad. Right. Yes. But if I'm self-medicating, if I'm choosing to do this stuff myself, it's a whole different ballgame. Which leads me to a question. Mandy has been sober for nine years, right? And Mm -hmm. she had, you know, this little chunk of her life that she uh, partied a little bit or whatever. But I did too. (laughs) Just just a little. Just a little (laughs) (laughs) I know, but I was right along. (laughs) But I was right alongside her. Okay. But, you know, I I was able to, you know, I I don't depend on it, I guess is the difference, right? Like, I haven't drank in seven years. We're able to drink half a beer and set the glass down and walk away. What is the difference? Is that what? Uh, So I'm a normie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really? Is there such thing? Yeah, that is a normal reaction to it. Okay. Normal people, they can imbibe, they can get as drunk as any alcoholic. Right. And and go back. But then walk away from it and be just fine. Right. Whereas me, I turn right around and I want more. So what I'm getting from you guys is you guys are recovering forever. You're always going to be that way. Yeah, we're not. Or you're choosing just to never risk it. 
Well, I'm choosing never risk it. I've I've uh, recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Okay. I know so long as I continue to do the things I'm doing now, much the way a diabetic would with continuing to monitor their blood sugar and adjust their diet and get exercise and all that stuff, that I generally don't run the risk of ever having an issue with it ever again in my life. And I like staying in that place. Right. What about you? People always say, you know, so you're recovered. No, I, every day I have to work for recovery. Recovery is forever for me. Forever. Mm-hmm. It's okay. forever. And quite frankly, I don't miss it. I I cherish my clarity mm-hmm. so much. And is that why you guys yeah. share? We share mm-hmm. experience, strength, and hope as part of the program of AA and hopes to help someone else. To help other people. Well, and to help me too. Yeah, Things will come out when I'm sharing that I oh. need to get out and share with others. It's our experience, strength, and hope, but it is also how uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, and mm-hmm. how we get through the things in life now that we could never do mm-hmm. before right. and weren't capable of, and just finding out new ways and new discovery of ourselves. What is a functioning alcoholic or addict? I was a functional alcoholic for quite a while. I never lost the apartment. Because of my drinking. I never lost a job because of my drinking. I lost opportunities at the jobs because of my drinking. I know most mornings I st- I woke up still drunk from the night before and then would go to work and start detoxing or you know getting the shakes at around 2 or so in the afternoon and then stop at the liquor store on my way home from work. Bills got paid, even though I was robbing Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> you know, and I'd figure out, okay, oh, $100 on my electricity. But I've only got $20 to drink with, and that's not enough. So I'm going to make a partial payment for my utility bill so I can have more to drink. I didn't eat proper meals, and some of the things like cleaning the house and bathroom and trash and dishes and all that was falling off to the side so that I could drink. Mm -hmm. Still functional. I got up and went to work. I wasn't living under a bridge, and that absolutely every aspect of my life I had to have a drink in my hand at the time. Uh, would I have done it if it was a little more socially acceptable to, you know, drink while running a office supply delivery route and driving a truck through town all day? Probably. Yeah, it worked. Probably. But I had morals. I had morals and standards and struggles. So a functioning alcoholic was like on the weekends in high school. I went balls to the walls. I drank. Yeah. But then I was an all-American athlete and had good grades. That justified my drinking as being okay right. because I could handle it all. Of course, as the years went on. And, when I cocktailed in Las Vegas, it got bad because my morals and values had started going down the tubes with my drinking. <laughs> and not only that, but I was working as a waitress in a strip club. I didn't like what I was doing and I was sacrificing who I really was and I didn't even know who I was anymore. And I could blame a million things. I could blame so many people, but the reality of it for me was when I got really honest with myself, I just liked the way it made me feel. For me, my bottom was losing my husband and my children, but mostly losing myself to the point where I wanted to die. Thought pattern we have when we are drinking and the thought patterns we have when we're not drinking. Mm -hmm. Where it's all geared towards getting back to the drinking. Yes. God, it was exhausting too. Oh, yeah. Well, the most exhausting part is watching your morals fall faster than your standards. Well, and your friends. Because some of your friends are only friends because you are... All kind of feeding oh, each other. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. So when you're no, because Mandy was fun. 
Okay, Manny, Manny was fucking nice. fun. Yeah, I was. I, anyone I wasn't that knows drunk. her, everyone wanted me to be drunk because they thought it was hilarious. But I found out I'm hilarious without it too. You are. <laughs> I love it. And I quit drinking around the same time you did. I did it in the beginning to support you, and then I just thought to myself, never really liked it. So I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna show her and all the other addicts and alcoholics all around me, and also show my children that. I can still live and have fun without drinking. And you guys had mm. someone who I met back then. Her name was Suzanne. Mm-hmm. And she just passed recently. But she was one of the people that stood out at the very beginning when you first, like around the same mm-hmm. time you met Steve, right? Mm-hmm. And she was your sponsor. Yeah. Tell us about Suzanne. Suzanne, oh, I miss her. So she's been gone, what, a couple years now? Yeah, about three years. Mm-hmm. She passed from cancer. Mm-hmm. A long did. battle. Yeah, her yeah. second battle with it. Yeah. She was my sponsor, and she was the first one I actually agreed to do the work with because I was that person who went into meetings and tried to smart my way and, you know, out of all the steps and lay and line my way through it all. And, you know, I went in and thought, who are all these crazy people? I'm nothing like them and looked for the differences and not the similarities. Yeah. And, so yeah. what was it about her that... She, I needed tough love Mm -hmm. and she called me on my shit and she made me look in the mirror and Mm -hmm. she was hard on me Mm -hmm. and I fucking hated her, but I fucking loved her. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. It's just different when it comes from someone that's like, he keeps saying my people, we we just get Mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. You guys are a community. We really are. You are. You all know each other. Dysfunctional one. (laughs) No, it's so funny. Y'all all all know each other. It's great. I have like a few clients you guys run into each other and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I almost feel left out. (laughs) You are. You don't want to join us. No, No. not really. (laughs) Well, no, seriously. But if you do, I know how to go about it. (laughs) What is the 12 steps? What is the sponsorship? Different sponsors will go about it different ways. Uh, It just depends on how they were taken through the work. Sponsor is generally somebody who's been in the program for at least a year. That's a program of recovery, some sort of 12-step program. Okay. Uh, The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous kind of defines him as a closed-mouth friend. Uh, Some people look at him as mentors or guides. The old meaning of sponsor, uh, back when the book was written, was you had to sponsor people to join a country club, which meant... You were going to take him in, you'd kind of be responsible for sh- uh, showing him around and telling him the rules of the place and how to do things. And, and you know, um, if it's a golf course, what is common courtesy on a mm-hmm. golf course? Mm-hmm. Who shoots first? Who shoots from where? Yeah. When it's okay to putt, don't cross mm-hmm. other I people's like that lines. Analogy. But that's what it was for. Um, to this day, a sponsor is generally somebody who's been through the work before and will take you through the work the way they were taken through it. Okay. You know, because there are things to do for each of the 12 steps. There's the 12 steps are the program that we work and that our sponsor takes us through. First step is admitting you're powerless over mm-hmm. alcohol and that your life had become Come unmanageable mm-hmm. as a result of that, i.e., like I said before, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, not mm-hmm. paying a bill in order that I can drink right. or doing mad things like so I'm going to clean my house spotless that so that nobody can talk and say anything about my drinking is interfering with how I'm maintaining the house okay. or appearance. It's um, about admitting that your life has become unmanageable. And that I no longer possess the power to stop drinking on my own once I start. You no longer have, yeah, you don't have control. Yeah. So what do you guys mean when you say one day at a time? 
Well, for me, it was one second at a time and then one minute at a time at the beginning. You know, it was very overwhelming for me to think, oh my God, I can't believe at my son's wedding I'm not going to be able to drink. Or it was very overwhelming for me to think that, oh my God, in an hour I still can't have another drink and I'm going through de you know, detox or withdrawals. It was just keeping me present in that moment and just taking it literally one tiny step at a time. And I still I implement that. that into my life. Do you have to be religious to be an AA? No, you don't have to. If you are, that's great. Uh, I find that this is a, what they call a program of spirituality and not of religion. Yeah, I remember my first couple of meetings, they kept telling me that I could have the doorknob as my higher power. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, what are you people smoking? Are you sure you're sober? What the hell are you talking about? That's just stupid. Yeah, That's and then so we, they do close with the Lord's Prayer. So it was a little confusing to me at first. <laughs> and holding hands. Yes. And everybody wants to hug you and ew, people. Yes. <laughs> but when you get to the point where I was at and you're desperate and it's life or death. If they would have told me to run down the street naked, I would have. I mean, I was desperate. Mm -hmm. And so when they told me that I needed to believe in something higher than myself, at first for me, it was just, I used a loved one that had passed away. For me, obviously, people know through our podcast, my spirituality has gone um, into a much deeper place than that. But I still do use that person as one of my higher powers. But yeah, mm -hmm. it's just believing that something bigger than yourself can help you and that's I guess Steve who you ultimately surrender to well yeah, yeah. absolutely you have to um, and getting to that point is not one of the things you have to do right away mm -hmm. uh, my sponsor initially had me write down ways I was powerless over alcohol and write down ways in my life had become unmanageable and I said I don't need to write this down I know it all and he said, write it down, because if you write it down, then you own it. You know, okay. then you can change it and put something, you know, and do something about it. Because magic in this program happens between the pen and the paper. Mm -hmm. And doing that for the first step became invaluable. In the second step, uh, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because the implication is I'm insane. I am insane around alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. My behavior is insane around that. And I fought with my sponsor on that. I'm like, I was never insane around it. I didn't go crazy right. or end up in a mental institution. He goes, right. okay, you pull didn't? out. But he right. said, pull out your pull out your first step and read that. Mm -hmm. And I did. And he goes, would any sane person do those things mm -hmm. more than once, mm -hmm. more than twice, or at all? Mm -hmm. And then I had to admit, okay, maybe I am a little crazy when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. Where's the line with people being able to, like, say, go to AA for help or having to go to a rehab? It just depends on them and their circumstances, I think. I know plenty of people who got sober just by going to AA. Uh, one of the things I recommend is if somebody is fresh off the streets and, you know, they're on their last run, they're going to quit, quit, I always recommend they go see a doctor immediately. Right. You know, and tell them what you're doing and what's going on. Because it doctor, dangerous. There's doctor-patient confidentiality, but we don't want you to, you know, be sitting there in a meeting and die on us. Okay. Which can happen. I want you to come to meetings. I want you to stop drinking. I want okay. you to have the life that you... sometimes you, you might need more. Yeah, I want you to have a life beyond measure, you know, and whatever that looks like for you. 
but I don't want you to die in the process. What did that so, look like for you, Mandy? For me, I knew I needed to go to rehab because I could not stop. I mean, my parents put me in a bedroom upstairs and locked the door. And I found a way out and broke into my neighbor's house and stole their alcohol. My people. <laughs> no way I could stop because yeah. once I picked up, I couldn't stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I needed to get into a facility. And for me, it had to be really far away in the middle of nowhere in a mountain because I tried to escape all the time. <laughs> a couple times I was successful and um, made it to Parker Road and hitchhiked. Nice. <laughs> So for nice. me, I knew I needed to get there. I also knew that for me, drinking was about self-hatred, shame, mm -hmm. guilt, events that had happened in my mm -hmm. life, grieving that I hadn't processed, masks that I were wearing. Resentments. Yes, and yeah. so resentment. Resentment That's was the huge. hugest one towards myself. So for me, I needed to get into a facility where we could get therapy, we could get medical detox, counseling, group counseling. They could teach me how to eat mm -hmm. again, self-care, fucking, I, taking a shower was hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah, get what you're talking yes. about. Yeah. But you also needed to put in place a plan for when you came out, yes, about they, being around different people. Yeah, they, aftercare. So they came up with an aftercare program and I was part of an outpatient program and that's what I needed. I needed yeah. to be held accountable and I needed to continue that. Steve mentioned earlier, you know, rehab is just where you get a lot of knowledge. Right. But the real world and the real sobriety starts when you get out. So new playground, mm -hmm. use the time. What does that mean to you? <laughs> We're talking about the podcast and she says something to me about the playground and play, and I said, are you making a new playground in your backyard? I had no idea what she was talking about. Yeah, we kind of have our own lingo, words. Yeah. Secret handshakes, yeah. you know, decoder rings. Yes. Yeah. But um, changing my playground and playmates was a huge part of my sobriety. I had to detach from people that were my party friends. And I had to quit going to bars. And I had to quit my job because I was a cocktail waitress. And I knew I couldn't stay sober in the service industry. And I'd been doing it for 23 years. I had to um, change everything about where I was putting myself in danger including like weddings you have to come up with a plan right. for the first couple of years you know you're going no you're going to a wedding and everyone's going to be drinking i had to come up with i had to take my own car because then i could leave when i was getting uncomfortable yeah. you know a lot of these things that i was taught through the program i know because then everyone's looking at you yeah she doesn't drink anymore dd oh yeah you know oh, definitely all the time yeah. Yeah, yeah all the time so let me ask you how big of a part did self-care come in after this self-love self-care well, for me, everything went back to self-love. Um, I despised myself. I hated myself. I couldn't even look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. I had basically told the devil, you won. You've got my soul. I mean, that's the last page I wrote in my so journal. So changing those thoughts are so important after. It was so hard. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom said something powerful to me. She said, your past doesn't define who you are. The second I believed my higher power was forgiving, then I knew I could forgive myself. And once I you know, did the work and had a little bit of self-love and integrity from there. It was, there was no looking back because I got a piece and a taste of what real life was without that mental fog and I wanted more. Can you guys define what is that dry drunk? I have some experience with this. Oh, you do? <laughs> oh, you yes, do? Sure. Okay. You? I might be considered one right now. Uh-oh. 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 <laughs> Are we going to have to talk? Yes. <laughs> okay. Help me. What is this? Um, 
A dry drunk is essentially somebody who has gotten into recovery. They've stopped drinking, but they've also stopped doing the work. Uh, the and work. by doing the work, I mean, they've quit talking to people. They quit being honest with themselves. They quit calling their sponsor. They're not talking to other people in the program. They're not going to meetings. They're not praying. They're not meditating. They're not doing the things that were taught, mm. the basic things were taught and shown how to do that allow us to continue on in sobriety. So our mental patterns go back to how they were when we were drinking. My thinking becomes the same and convoluted and insane as when I was drinking. And then I will act out and follow other behavior patterns and perform activities. Not necessarily drink or use drugs, but I will do things while I'm in a, quote, dry, non-drunk state that I would have only done while drinking. Oh, okay. So your old attitudes wow. and behaviors come yeah. back. So some of those things like yeah. self-hatred. Self-loathing comes right. back yeah. pretty strong. Okay. Yeah. Emotionally drunk, mentally yeah. drunk, but physically sober. I know I wouldn't be here without Alcoholics Anonymous. It saved my life. But I have to say that I do know people that lead a very sober, amazing life. And they, you know, my way is not everyone's way. Mm-hmm. And I can't judge other people's way. Okay. This is just my experience and Steve's mm-hmm. experience. Right. So for us, we talk a lot about AA because that was what we did. And that's what worked for us. And I tried just about everything else. Let me just tell you. I mean. I tried everything else. Nothing allowed me to drink and be happy. (laughs) Well, it must be good. I mean, I'm not even an alcoholic. And like the big book is one of my favorite books. Yes, I love the book. It's amazing, but I'm wondering what the hell is wrong with you? (laughs) It's a good book. It's, it is. Yeah. It's an amazing book. The best book I've ever read. The book has never lied to me. Mm-hmm. And it's given me a lot of insight on how to live my life. It is the most stolen book in the world. The Bible is wow. number two. No matter the religion, yeah. no matter the race, no matter the sex. Yeah. There's, there's the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. AA does not care about anything else. We don't care your specific religion. We don't care your gender. Your color, your accent, nothing is cared about. We don't even care if you're like an ex-murderer. We don't care if you're... (laughs) We don't care what you've done, where have you been. We just care and we'll, you know, open our arms to you if you just have a desire to quit drinking. Um, I think it's important to talk about other resources. There's so many out there Mm -hmm. for anyone that's struggling. There's resources. There's sober living homes which are amazing. You're in with uh, generally the same gender of people. You're going to have all guys in one house, all women in another house because humans are humans Mm -hmm. and you could take the drunks out of the bar but not the bar out of the drunks sometimes. (laughs) So you want to separate them because you want them to concentrate on getting sober, not necessarily what they're going to do to impress their next date. Churches have programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doctors are a great resource. A lot of doctors will find them in meetings now attending open meetings as part of them being medical students and wanting to learn more. Oh, okay. uh, AA also has programs for public outreach, uh, cooperating with the um, professional community, CPC. They generally go to the medical schools and stuff and do presentations and panels for the doctors and nurses. There's even online now. Yes. Yeah. So let me ask you guys a question. What does addiction do to your soul? Oh, I tried it off at happy hour, man. Do you think that your soul disassociates when you're going through this? Um, yeah. Uh, well, 
I won't say that. Uh, it does. It's not that it dissociates. If you're speaking of soul as like your moral center, your in, your energy. Yeah, that life I force. generally took it out for a swim and try to drown it, not being entirely successful, which is one of the drivers for the, one of the true definitions of the disease, which is the disease of more. If little is better, more is even better. So I want more. Right. You know, or if little is good, more is better. So I'm always looking for more. What really happened to my soul was through the depravity, through the falling standards, through the falling morals, my soul was just decimated. Because internally, I think all of us believe that we're meant for something great, something good, something wholesome in life. And we're all meant for that. And when we start falling short of that, we start really laying into ourselves mm-hmm. about how terrible we are for it. And then it just becomes a self-fulfilling, self-destructive cycle. I just remember thinking, how is it that I can look at my children and love them so much and keep choosing this bottle over them? Because my body was so addicted and I fucking hated myself for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I started drinking so young that I don't even know that I knew what my soul ever really was. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I was all ego and I never knew who I was. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you what alcohol did to me was make me hate myself so very much that I truly thought the world and these children and everyone in my life would be better without me. Mm-hmm. And I believed that with every ounce of my soul. Would you change anything about this? Would you change the fact that you guys have had to face these battles in your life? That's the weird thing this does to you. One of the things I'm so grateful about right? that I didn't understand when they sit when I first came in and they said I'm a grateful alcoholic. Yeah. I'm like, they're fucking nuts. <laughs> but I've gotten to a point now where I'm okay with my past. Yeah. Because everything that happened, everything I went through, yeah. got me to the point I'm at now, right. and I like myself. Yes. I know, and I like that too. And, <laughs> And if I change any of that, I may not like what I what I am. So yeah. I am fine with right. how it is yeah. now. Yeah. Plus, everything in my past allows me to relate to the new guy coming That's in right. and Part reach them in a way that somebody who's not one of us can't. Because I've been there. I know yeah. that look in their eye. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, I was homeless at one point. I lost my children. I, I can remember almost thinking about prostituting in the streets in Vegas to get back to Colorado because I was left there because I was so drunk. We can take that out. No, I don't care. <laughs> I'm That's one thing about an alcoholic is we don't care. Yeah, uh, pretty much we've got we've come to peace with that exactly. stuff. Exactly. You know, I don't have any shame anymore because right. I no have shame in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I truly love myself, and I know that all of that gave me so many amazing life lessons. Right. Yeah. And I tell my children these things. Even I am a very vulnerable person with my story because the reason I started this podcast. Mm-hmm. I believe that if we don't share our pains and our story, then we are missing out on an opportunity to help. How many years do you have? I will have nine on November 10th. Do you get an AA You get a chip. Yes, they're Mm -hmm. beautiful. Mine has the serenity prayer. It looks a little Illuminati on the other side. Am I wrong? (laughs) It it does, but that's that's the universal symbol that Alcoholics Anonymous has adopted for itself. Yeah, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. 
It's goes for I, anybody. Yeah, anybody. Mm-hmm. You yes. see it being thrown out on yeah. posts on Facebook it's, all the time. Yeah, it's a sh- it's a shortened version of the Saint Francis of Assisi prayer. So let me ask you, how many years do you have, Steve? I'm just over twenty two now. Twenty two. Oh, well, twenty two. We just talked about, about that. twenty two. That okay. was two episodes ago. We should have had you for that one too. Right. <laughs> so we talked a few episodes back about our vibration, and addiction lowers your vibration. You get your positive energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would suggest um, some of these gemstones. Can I admit that I have a crystal and gemstone addiction? <laughs> There's a 12-step program for that. Oh, it's there held is. Over it's held at the school. <laughs> How ironic that I went from carrying, I said this in the last podcast too, um, cocaine rocks in my bra tonight. I healing rocks in my bra. <laughs> it's, it's the damn truth. Yeah. Yep. Did y'all know that the, that the amethyst is considered the sobriety stone, which comes from the Greek word amethos, which literally means not drunk. Whoa. The ancient mythology says that Bacchus turned this young maiden into stone and in remorse, he poured wine all over her stone statue, which then stained it with purple and created amethyst. Uh-huh. Uh, well, get an you amethyst. know who Bacchus is, right? Well, no. I only know that Bacchus is a really awesome parade for Mardi Gras in Louisiana. Yeah. That, not that one? Who's yeah, Bacchus? the original name for that guy was Dionysus, and it was the god of wine. Oh, Lordy. Yeah. I probably prayed to him a few times. Oh, man. I, <laughs> drove, I drove his chariot, also known as the bus. Lithium quartz mm-hmm. is a soothing stone that balances your emotions and helps with anxiety, specifically addiction. If you do get these stones, you can meditate with them or carry them, wear them. I suggest all holistic therapy since you're not taking any medications. Yeah, I mean, when I was in rehab, I did acupuncture for detox. I Cheater. Well, yeah. I was well, cheating. We were just told tough it out. You got to feel it, so you never wanted to feel it again, right? Right. Yeah. Many people <laughs> think that addiction is just drugs and alcohol, but that's not the case. Oh yeah. Mm. Shopping, sex, social media, your body, hmm, tobacco, gambling, yeah. food, food, prescription yeah. medicine, of course, I, caffeine. I got, but I'm addicted. Yeah. I'm good with that. Well, I'm and, good with it. And adrenaline, gym rat, drama addiction. Mm-hmm. Those are all common. But we have to mention some of these strange addictions. Oh, Lordy. I'm scared. I'm excited. Well, nothing's weird than Steve and I. Yeah. So I go mean... for it. Okay, let's hear them. Uh, many of these are around eating and drinking. Just one more thing. Don't do this at home. Um, <laughs> yeah, save it for public. Yeah. <laughs> so things like eating laundry soap, toilet paper. You know, if you're really there, please go ahead. Some people have an addiction to eating their mattress. This is on the show, My Strange Addiction. Be normally addicted like the rest of us loonies. Right? <laughs> so this, and, and I'm trying not to judge. This guy oh, eats. Oh, I judge. This guy eats the blue plastic bags that go around newspapers. He's ate about 60,000 of them. How is he still alive? I don't, well, this girl drinks gasoline. She oh. likes to drink it out the gas can. How is she still alive? Right, uh, because that's fatal. Well, this one likes to drink warm urine. Uh, I mean, if I'm in a desert and there's no other option, I might. That was called <laughs> Vegas, wasn't it? The golden shower? <laughs> right. Oh, Jesus. Y'all, y'all are nasty. Oh my God. Hey, you do a lot of stuff to stay cool in the desert. 
tend to make a couple pieces. Listen to this one. You're not going to believe it. This lady eats her dead husband, his ashes. Wow. What happens when she runs out? Girl, I don't know. I hope she doesn't have another husband. It can't be a whole lot because, you know, I've seen cremated bodies before. It's not a whole lot. It's like a pound or two of ashes. Well, maybe he was like 600 pounds. Does she just like sprinkle them on as like a topping or like sprinkles on the ice cream? Yeah. This lady, she eats her cat's hair, just sits right next to her like popcorn and just eats her cat's hair Do right off her cat. have like severe vitamin deficiencies? Oh, I'm thinking they need lithium. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, all these people need professional That's help, which is one of the other things the program actually says is when we're in need of professional help, we seek it yeah. and then follow the instructions given by the professionals. Right. Well, and I must add that I took that route, but what I did was I wasn't honest about my drinking, so I tried to get pretend I had anxiety, and then I tried to pretend I was bipolar, and then I tried to pretend it was everything but alcohol because I wasn't ready to give up the drinking. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that when I got my health um, and medical records, it showed that I was schizophrenic, manic-depressant, had multiple personalities, dementia. had dementia, yeah, and I, I couldn't that. help but fucking laugh. Yeah. You want to know why? Because the reality is, At the that's how day. I presented myself yeah. when I was drinking. Yeah, right. it's it's an actual typical presentation. Yeah, uh, of an right. active alcoholic. It was crazy. It was crazy. But what? How humbling to see that. And go, holy shit, that's how I was acting and what I was like. And so, you know what? At one point, I probably would have tried some of that crazy shit you're mentioning. If you started eating cat's hair, you would have died. Well, if I could, if I had to eat cat's hair to get alcohol, I would have. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) My people, right there. (laughs) All right, it is time for Break That Shit Down. All right, number one, break that shit down. Do not eat or drink anything we just talked about. Shit, just has to say that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all break the shit down. I think the first thing that comes into my head is you're not alone. If you think you need help, there are a million resources and people out there that are happy to help you. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're seeking help, help is available out there. Do not give up. Do not stop. If you're having a problem. Also, if you find yourself in AA wondering if you have a problem with alcohol, yes, you do. The fact of the matter is normal people never question whether or not they have a problem with alcohol. Generally, only people that have a problem with alcohol are starting to question whether or not they have a problem. Facts. I remember someone told me one time, you know, Mandy, you're always making these promises to yourself. Like, I'm going to promise myself I'm not going to drink for a month. I'm going to try not to drink for two weeks. Well, guess what? Normal drinkers don't have to do that. Right? Yeah. Yeah, don't give up, people. It is, you're worth it. You're worth the fight. And, you know, I'm not here to tell you it's all roses and butterflies, but it is absolutely worth it. Life today Mm -hmm. is beautiful. Awesome. Next week, we will be talking about detachment, enabling, codependency, boundaries, and the three C's. You didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. Any last words on enabling? Thank you for enabling me to be here today and on your podcast. (laughs) I really appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Mandy and Steve, for sharing your stories and your wisdom with us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, please review, like, and subscribe. Yeah, we rise to lift you up. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.